Hi, I'm Tammy Hicks-Jackson. Welcome to my podcast. I am a Christian pastor in the United Methodist tradition, and this podcast covers a variety of topics. You may find anything from Bible study and devotions to yoga and meditation from a Christian perspective to my thoughts on Christian leadership and the church. Look for the descriptions and the tags for each episode to find what you're interested in. And thanks for taking this journey with me. Let's jump into this episode. Acts 13 continues our story looking at the church at Antioch. Right now, it appears that there are two primary churches in this new movement called the Way. The church in Jerusalem, which is primarily Jewish believers, and the church in Antioch, which is still primary Jewish believers, but as well as some Gentiles who are beginning to be folded in. We see that this church has a set of prophets and teachers, people emerging as their spiritual leaders. One of those becomes Barnabas, who was sent to check out what's going on and appears to have stayed um, for some portion of time. There is Simeon. Um, Niger um, is a reference to someone being from Africa. Um, so it may or may not be a It's another way of referring to Simeon, which would tell me there weren't an awful lot of people who had black skin in that area, that that would be how they designate him. There's Lucius, there's Saul, who becomes Paul, and there's Menaean, who is a prominent citizen in the community. Barnabas and Saul are going to be commissioned for the first missionary journey. We need to take this story out beyond us Um, to others. Now, the missionary journeys, you can Google or you can look in some Bible study materials and find outlines of the missionary journeys of Paul. I'm going to make some references to cities only to try to help us keep a track of what's going on, but I'm not going to do a full tracing of those. John Mark goes with them when they leave, but by verse 13 of the chapter, John Mark is going to leave and and go home. Turns out this is harder than he thought it was going to be, and he decides, I don't know if I'm cut out for this missionary stuff, which we find out later is going to really tick Paul off, but and he's going to have a hard time getting over it. So we find ourselves in Cyprus, and there's a confrontation Saul and Eliamus. So we have a battle between a false prophet and a true prophet. The physical blindness, once again, is going to be reflective of the spiritual blindness that he has. In verse 13, Paul is portrayed as a great orator. In other of his letters, he's going to say, I didn't come to you with fancy flowery words. He's downplaying his oratory skills We also see as he begins to appear in front of tribunes and Roman governors that he is a good speaker. He is a trained orator as a Pharisee and one who has studied under rabbis. This speech here is his first speech in the book of Acts, and he is presented as speaking as well as Peter did on Pentecost. There are three parts to his speech that we have here. One is lineage and history. The second part is recognizing Jesus and the need for that. And the third one is an argument for the fact that Jesus alone is the way that we can get to and connect with God. In verse 42, we find ourselves in Antioch of Pisidia. There were more than one um, city named Antioch. 
Paul and Barnabas are here. Now we are not referring to Barnabas and Saul. We are referring to Paul and Barnabas. The the first name that gets listed has changed. The first name is important. It's, It's an indication of the dominant person in the pair. When we started this, Barnabas was the more experienced, more outspoken person. But as they begin the missionary journey, Paul quickly lives into this calling and he becomes the one who is prominent and Barnabas the supporter. In verse 51, we see that the churches continue to resist diversity, racial diversity, diversities of practice, socioeconomic diversity. These are things the church still struggles with today. In chapter 14, we're in Iconium, which is 90 miles southeast of Antioch. And we see that we have unbelieving Jews who are going to cause trouble. The residents are divided over whether or not to believe the apostles. But those who don't, those who reject Jesus as the Messiah and the fulfillment of their scriptures are going to adamantly oppose it. They want to stone them. They're so upset. And so they have to flee. We will see that in some of these instances, the apostles must leave for their safety. In other instances, they refuse to leave and they go on about doing what they're doing. We have to listen to the Holy Spirit to know what is a battle we should fight and what is a battle that we should walk away from. Next, we see the apostles in Lystra and Derby, And there is a man, another one, who is crippled from birth. Paul heals him. Um, And this causes them to be mistaken for gods. They, of course, reject this, and they don't want worship or adulation of themselves. The objection of the Jews to Jesus is not just the belief that Jesus is the Messiah, which they don't believe that he was, but they're also really objecting to the inclusion of Gentiles into God's saving action and to seeing Jesus as equal to God, this reference of Son of God and elevating Him, that's, that's repugnant to them. And so they, they don't want Gentiles included. And that I believe that is the primary cause, uh, that they believe they are God's chosen people and they're unwilling to let others be brought into that. Jews come over from Antioch and Iconium over here to Lystra and Derby to oppose them. I mean, they're pretty invested in causing trouble, not even in their area. They're going to go out of their way to continue to involve themselves in opposing what God is doing. Um, This still happens today with people really being invested in criticizing or commenting on something happening in a church that they're never have or are no longer associated with. They do this time, they stone Paul and they leave him for dead, but he's not. Now we're in Antioch in Syria. Um, They go back in the direction that they came from. They return to all the places where they have encouraged believers. This also means that they're returning to all the places where they've had opposition and they do so to strengthen and encourage the believers there. They help the believers organize themselves. They ordain leaders. They help them begin to be structured so that they can carry out ministry effectively. And then they go home to report on the experiences that they have had. In chapter 15, we have the council at Jerusalem. 
This is an evidence of holy conferencing. This is something we as United Methodists believe strongly in. I believe it would have been really easy for the church at Antioch to have split away from the church at Jerusalem and said, we will follow God in the way we see fit and you do likewise, but we won't have you telling us what we should do. It would have been really easy for Paul to say, I've been called of God and I've been anointed. I've had a personal experience with him on a road to Damascus. I've received the Holy Spirit. I operate as a healer and a prophet and a preacher. I'm as good an orator as Peter. I won't have Peter and the rest of the apostles in Jerusalem bossing me around and telling me what I have to do. But this isn't what they do. They come together and they meet and they seek God together. They engage in holy conferencing instead of schism. The Judaizers, as they are called, believed that in order for Gentiles to come to Jesus, they needed to convert first to Judaism and then to Jesus. This would have meant engaging in circumcision. It would have meant learning to practice the Jewish holidays, the Jewish faith, Jewish prayers, and Jewish dietary laws. James is currently leading the Jerusalem church at this point in time. He and Peter are somehow sharing control and leadership, but he is the the leader of the church proper. And the decision that they all come to is that the Gentile believers should refrain from idolatry. So we're not going to mix this belief in Jesus, just stir it all up with what they already believed in to refrain from sexual sin, and to not engage in offensive food preparation practices. Now, it's possible that all three of these, that actual idolatry or worship of other gods, the sexual practices and the food is all involved in, in the worship of other gods, or it could refer to like idolatry, plus we're going to behave different sexually, your culture is a little different. But this will facilitate fellowship with Jewish believers. What, how can each side give? Jewish believers in Jesus cannot insist that everyone become just like them. But Gentile believers also have an obligation to give in some ways to facilitate and help Jewish believers be open to acknowledging that they have come from God and receive the Holy Spirit as well. We are encouraged to compromise, to meet in the middle on both ends. No side is expected to go the whole distance in the church. We work together. We find common ground. Judas and Silas are going to go on a missionary journey now to share the, this teaching, to share what the decision has been um, They are called prophets in verse 32. Paul and Barnabas now are going to separate, and they're going to separate over John Mark. John Mark went home part of the way through the journey in chapter 13. Barnabas wants to give John Mark another chance. Paul is adamantly opposed to that. Um, Turned out missionary work was hard, and he went home. Barnabas is a mentor, an exhorter, an encourager. He's willing to let people grow, to develop, to do better than they have in the past. Paul is not. Um, Paul is not willing to let people grow at this point. Let's notice 
that Paul refuses to allow Barnabas to do for John Mark what Barnabas did for Paul. Remember, Barnabas smoothed Paul's way and helped people give him another chance when they knew him as a persecutor of the church. Barnabas and John Mark are going to go one way, and Paul and Silas are going to go another. Interesting that even this division is going to further the gospel because now instead of one missionary journey, there are two happening. The church was unanimous on the decision regarding Gentile believers and what they should do. But now a lack of grace is going to shatter that unanimity. Paul will not extend that grace. And in this case, Paul, although a great apostle to the Gentiles, Paul is wrong. Um, The gospel is still going to go forward, but it is proof that no matter how right we may be on some things, we are often not right on everything. Chapter 16, Timothy joins Paul and Silas on their missionary journey. Um, They do to him in a way that I find interesting, what they just decided wasn't necessary. They just decided that the circumcision wasn't necessary, but they're going to do it anyway. Sometimes we as the more mature believer, as the one who is trying to make the inroad um, to bridge the gap between us and others, we must be willing to go further than we ought to have to do more than is necessary in order to facilitate the reception of the gospel. And we should do this willingly and with open hearts so that we can be used of God. They are guided by the Spirit to places and persons where they may be effective. In Philippi, Philippi is a prominent city. Uh, Believers are gathered by the river. It's called a place of prayer. This was very common for Jewish believers. In a city where they didn't have enough Jewish males to have a synagogue, you needed 10 adult men to have a synagogue proper, they would go out by the river and just meet and talk and share and pray together in a more informal setting. And those groups were often more diverse than a formal synagogue because a synagogue was considered holy space. This was considered um, open discussion. Much like in the temple, there was the court of the Gentiles where there was conversation and teaching that happened. But then you went into the temple area proper that only Jewish people could go into. So this place of gathering at the river is a common place and where they would have gone to look for people to talk to Jesus about. Lydia is likely a freed female slave who is now wealthy. She's done well for herself. She's from Thyatira, which was known for its purple dye and its cloth. Um, She and her household convert, and the Philippians church is planted. And we believe that Lydia was the leader of that church as the first convert. She hosted it meeting in her home and was seen as the pastor and the shepherd of that group of people. Paul and Silas are going to set a slave girl free from a spirit of divination. This girl is delivering a factually accurate statement, but it's from an unacceptable source. Paul and Silas can't let this source look like it's God, like her source is not the one true living God. But I also want you to notice that Paul heals her out of annoyance, not out of kindness, 
not out of compassion, not even out of rightness. He does it because he's annoyed. Um, He could ignore it no longer, and her owners are upset by that. This is going to stir up controversy. The owners who now have lost their socioeconomic, have lost their economic avenue, are going to stir up a mob. So mob mentality takes over, and this is um, common, and they're going to throw them in jail. Around midnight, uh, Paul and Silas are praying and singing in jail. There's an earthquake that opens the jail, and they are freed. Unlike Peter earlier, they don't leave. They stay, and they stay, and the jailer converts. In verse 34, we see that his household rejoices. So that may mean that his household converts with him. That's very common. A person converts and their whole household converts with them. Or it is possible that his family were already believers because it says they rejoiced that he had come to believe. Could this whole incident have happened so that the jailers would encounter the apostles and come to know Jesus. We never know how events may line up to give us an opportunity to share the gospel. The jailer releases Paul and Silas. I don't know what he tells the people in charge, because usually a jailer, it would have cost them their life for Paul and Silas. Although this is probably um, a temple guard and not a Roman soldier. Anyways, um, Paul and Silas don't want to just be quietly released. Paul wants to be exonerated as publicly as he was arrested publicly. In chapter 17, we're now in Thessalonica. This is the city and the church to which the letters of Thessalonians are written. Paul and Silas go to a synagogue, um, and some are going to be persuaded, some are not. The, the very common response to the gospel, a mixed response. It says that others are jealous. Um, how much criticism of other churches is born out of our jealousy of what's happening over there? Instead of focusing on what God is doing with us and what we could do for the glory of God, we spend too much time looking at what other churches are doing and how they're receiving blessings when we They need to quit worrying about what's happening with the apostles. Another mob forms, um, and they're going to redirect their anger to Jason, who was hosting Paul and Silas when they can't find them. They misrepresent the message that's being shared. They say that Paul and Silas are promoting another king. And I love, I just love that they say they are turning the world upside down. Yes, that's what we're supposed to do, is turn the world upside down. That's what the message of Jesus does. Um, If the message of Jesus hasn't turned your world upside down, spend some time with God and, and, and let Him do that. Over in Berea, 50 miles southwest of Thessalonica, they find the Jews there very receptive to the message. But trouble is going to follow them as Jews from Thessalonica are going to come over to stir up trouble here. Um, Paul is the most vocal and the most visible of the apostles, of the missionaries. So they have him leave immediately to try to diffuse some of this. Silas and Timothy remain behind 
not only to to witness and bring people to Jesus, but to strengthen and educate those who have already believed. Paul goes over to Athens and waits on Silas and Timothy there. He's disturbed by the extent of pagan worship that he witnesses there. He also encounters philosophers, Epicureans and Stoics. Epicureans pursued contentment. They didn't believe that the gods were involved in human life. Now, that doesn't mean that they didn't believe in God or in gods, plural. They probably did, or most of them did. They just didn't believe that the gods were involved in human life. They had, they existed completely separately and without giving a rip what was going on with people. So they're seeking contentment in other ways other than connection with God. The Stoics sought to control their passions through reason and discipline. They were seeking ways to explain um, what was happening to them and to find the strength to face those experiences. And their way of doing that was to suppress and control all emotional response. Um, This would remind us of Spock from Star Trek or Sheldon Cooper from Big Bang Theory to only apply to reason and discipline and not get emotions involved. So Paul preaches this sermon where he mentions an unknown God. He notices they have all these idols and they have one that doesn't is just to a God we don't even know in case there's another one. Let's just appease them as well. Paul shapes his message in a way that they can receive. The composition of the gospel is never compromised, but the packaging and the delivery of that gospel does change. It adapts to where they are and who needs to be reached. This is a clever contextual beginning point. Paul uses their culture as a way to connect rather than to condemn to build a bridge and be able to share the gospel with them. The response, once again, is divided as always. And this takes us through the end of chapter 17.